No. Ah, much better. Now, get ready for an uncivilized discussion about faith. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Barbarian, Barbarian Prophets. Welcome back, Barbarian Nation. I'm so glad you're willing to join us today. I hope everybody had an amazing Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, one thing that I get blessed with every so often is actual famous people. I mean, like super epically level famous people come in contact in my house. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, my guest today is shaking his head over there and as you can tell by the opening sound that we had today it has something to do with splash and i know you're all thinking that this is my friend douglas shoals who has the daily plunge which i suggest you tune into anytime you get an opportunity so hi doug and a shout out for you brother but uh i'm actually joined today by a very famous guy that never sees himself as famous but uh, I feel like the only fame I've ever known is because I'm related to this guy. But I am jo- I am joined together uh, today by uh, Dave Denniston, which is the swim coach for the U- University of Wyoming. And he just also happens to be my brother-in-law and just amazing all-around guy. And uh, so, Dave, welcome to the Barbarian Prophet. Well, thanks, Bert. This is cool. I I like what you have set up here. And, yeah, I don't know about the fame stuff, but I do think (laughs) it it is cool spending time with you, as always. Uh, I enjoy having conversations, and recording one is a first for us, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what we kind of unearth here. It is. So, uh, you know, Dave, uh, you are the swim coach for UW. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you have, uh, well, let's run through your, your work history a little bit here (laughs) back to when you were a kid. So you started, we'll, we'll just kind of take them through it real quick. You were in a place called Wright, Wyoming, which all famous swimmers come from. Most of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, just so you're all aware, they don't even have a pool in that town, do they? No, they do now. Uh, that's they didn't happened. then, though. Yeah, they had a little um, four-lane, 25-yard pool. It was kind of one of the cool things that the mining companies, when they first started doing work up there, and, and Wright was one of the first towns that was truly just built to be a mining community for people that would work in the mines, they also wanted to set up things for families. And so one of the better things they did was they had a cool little rec center with basketball courts, racquetball courts, and they had a little four-lane, 25-yard pool. And um, I I had next-door neighbors that wanted to start a swim team, but they needed a fourth guy so they could have a relay, and they conned me into it, and that's where it all started. And how old were you? Eight years old. Nice. So you started the big swim at eight. I didn't come along for a few more years with you. No, not really. But I I mean, it was weird growing up in a small town like that because you tried to do everything. And I, I remember my, my parents were big into me just doing something to stay active. So we tried different sports. Um, the one that stands out is I did try to wrestle for about a year. <laughs> and I did not like that. People grabbing onto my neck and throwing me around was not my thing. And there was one guy in particular that always came in with a polo shirt on that had uh, buttons on it, and those buttons always scratched my face, and I just got so fed up with those buttons, and I was like, I'm done wrestling. <laughs> That's hilarious. So uh, you and I met, I think you were what, about 13, 12, 11, what? How old were you? 
Uh, when did you start dating my sister? <laughs> uh, 1986. So I would have been eight. Oh, you were eight. I didn't realize you were that young, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the first time I pull up it, to your house. That's to, what to I remember. Your, yeah, yeah, to meet your dad is what <clears throat> I was doing. I think you were on your way to Sturgis or something. Yeah. Because you were riding with some guys. And um, I remember you pulled up with a few of your friends and... You'd been out for a while. I mean, riding a bike is dirty. Well, I, I was a little feral back then. Yeah. <laughs> I might have been out riding for a month. All I remember of that is, you know, the bikes make a lot of noise, and you pulled into our driveway, and my mom was like, get in the house, get in the house. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> and then uh, she still says that when I pull up, just so you're aware. And then she, like, peeks through and she's like, oh, it's Christy, and she's with a guy. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> a huge gorilla with long hair and lots of beard, and it's a Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, yeah. You and I kind of been latched up since then. But uh, on the other end, so you swam in high school. I did. So swimming was one of those things that that took off from for me. Um, it was just a place that I was always comfortable. I, I do a lot of thinking about being a swimmer because. <laughs> there's no real reason why I should have been a swimmer where I did grow up. I mean, there was nothing about it that, that stood out other than I figured out how to beat the three people that I raced against and thought I was pretty tough stuff, you know? Right. But at the same time, in reflecting on it now and even why it's my job now is it really connects to water. And I had a coach in college, uh, David Marsh, an Olympic coach, and he always talked a lot about building your relationship with the water and in the term relationship with the water is something that I've gotten hung up on a lot in terms of how do you have a relationship with something that's inanimate, but water's not inanimate. When you start thinking about what water really is and you, I mean, we can get into the, the theological side of what a water is. Yeah, we'll we'll but, tap that here in a minute. But, but let's start down but this that, road but first. That, but that that relationship with water is something for me that anytime I've been next to water, in water, had water as something that was close to my life, I feel calmer, I feel confident. I've always just felt like I could be myself. And and so water has always been something for me that is a lot more than I drink. But when I got into swimming with it and, and being in the water, it's like the only sport that doesn't have a ball or a stick or something that you use, you know. Right. My medium is water. Right. And so being in the water and, and building that relationship is something that has been a lifelong journey, but it's also been something that I understand now on a much higher level. Excellent. Well, so you went to Auburn University. I did. And uh, you did pretty well there swimming. Yeah, so you know when we when I was about fifteen, well, part of it was I, I did develop this passion. One of the cool things for me that my parents did a really good job of is they wanted me to be active, but the swimming thing wasn't something that was part of my family, and it absolutely became my thing. Like it, it wasn't something my parents were forcing me to do. It wasn't something I was doing because somebody expected me to do it. Swimming and racing in, in a pool and being in the water was just my thing. And I wanted to pursue it to every level that I could. We actually, 
the swim team dissolved, dissolved there in, in Wright. And so my mom started driving me to Gillette every day after school so I could go practice up there. Right. And a lot of times, like people I was racing and training with, well, they were working out in the mornings. Well, I couldn't drive to Gillette and then come back to Wright and drive back to Gillette. It was a 40 mile drive one way. Right. And so we actually convinced the DARE officer in Wright, who was a former swimmer, to open up the rec center for me so I could swim a couple times in the morning nice. before the rec center was even open. But that's a heart's um, desire right there. And then the other thing I had was uh, a really neat guy that was a, a teacher there at the Wright Junior Senior High School. His name was Ron Butler. And at the time, there wasn't like a gym, like a, a weight room gym at the school like they have now, it was basically a bus barn with a bunch of old weight equipment in it that, you know, we went in there and I didn't know a lot about lifting, but I knew my teammates were lifting. Well, Ron Butler opened up the weight room and we'd go in there and lift weights together. And I, I started lifting on my own before school. I'd ride my bike down there and lift and then go to classes and that type of thing. But it was always my thing that I was driven and, and had a lot of passion for. And so I was able to let that take off and pursue it at the highest level i got i was the fastest uh high schooler uh to graduate in 1997 in breaststroke and so i got recruited by all the big schools and the, the team that won that year was auburn university and so i went to auburn uh in part because there was also a really great coach there named jimmy flowers who was the one coach that recruited me that didn't talk about swimming uh, he talked about living in the mountains and going camping and climbing mountains and, you know, that type of thing. It was a lot of fun for me. And, and I had that connection with Jimmy. And at one point, I swore I'd never go back to Auburn because the humidity and the bugs and everything else like that. I was like, no, this isn't for me. But when I went and took my recruiting visit, I was like, this is where I'm going. And, and so That's I, awesome. So then then you got, of course, you did extremely well through through all the college yeah, no, I, I was an NCAA champion um, in the 200 breaststroke, so I he, wanted, I just want you to know he says that was like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was the NCAA. Well, I mean, I, I worked hard for it, but I had teammates that supported me along the way and, and great coaching, and I, I was fortunate, and, and I always had the work ethic. I think that's one of the things that is instilled in you when you grow up in Wyoming is you can kind of accomplish or do whatever you want if you're going to be willing to work for it. Right. And that's always one of those things I've kept in my back pocket is I might not be the smartest, the most talented, whatever, but I can outwork anybody. Well, that's good. That's good to know. Yep. <clears throat> you, uh, so after that, you gave a shot at the Olympics, your first shot. I tried, yep, in 2000. Uh, so to make the Olympic team in the United States, they have the Olympic trials swim meet, and um, it doesn't matter what you're ranked in the world or any of that stuff. Actually, at the time, I was ranked third in the world, uh, but you got to make it through the preliminary races and then the semifinals. So they take the top 16, and out of the top 16, they take a final heat of top eight. So you race three times, but in that last race of the top eight, you have to get first or second place to represent the U.S. at the Games. So give us a rundown. How did it go? Uh, I made it to the top eight. Um, I was seated third by one one hundredth of a second going into finals. The guy that was seated second um, was a teammate of my own that I literally beat every day in practice. Um, but, you know, they, 
there was a bigger plan in place and uh, my goggles filled up with water off my start and I just didn't have a good race and, and uh, didn't make it. Uh, Pat, my teammate, did, and I congratulated him and gave him a big hug and all those things. But, yeah, just missed out on making the Olympic team in, in 2000 in the 100-meter breaststroke. And then Dave does what? Gets ready for the next yeah. Olympics. Well, the cool thing about that was I, I was finishing my degree at the university and, and wanting to put all my eggs in one basket. Like, I, I knew I could make the team. So I did everything I could, um, but also knowing that most of my time was going to be spent training and that type of thing. I was like, okay, how am I going to pay for this dream? And uh, I was fortunate enough to be selected on the national team that went to Moscow, Russia in 2003. <clears throat> and uh, we were the first American team to compete in the Olympic pool from the 1980s because wow we, that's that's pretty impressive yeah, we, we, we boycotted the 80 games in moscow um and so no american had swum in this pool and the first time that americans swam in this pool was in 2003 were you the first to dip in probably not okay, uh, i just double checking man you never know but and i was the first american and, in the and, russian pool and i did well i mean i i got silver in the 200 breaststroke and then on the last day was the 400 medley relay and um i was a had a great supporting cast of that, but we shattered the world record. We had the anchor man himself. So if anybody remembers or knows anything about swimming, Jason Lezak, the guy that won that famous relay in Beijing, China on the last leg to, to beat the French team. He was our anchor guy on this and, and we shattered the world record. And um, it's kind of a cool cultural thing of our sport that no matter where you are or who you are, just out of sign of respect, you give a standing ovation for a world record. And I can guarantee you there wasn't one Russian in that building that wanted to put their cigarette down and stand up and clap for the Americans, but they did. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <clears throat> now, one of the things with that is my uh, when you when you talk about swimming world at my church, <clears throat> mm -hmm. I have several kids that are in swimming yeah. and their parents have been in swimming, yeah. et cetera. And uh, I remember there was a picture of you and me somewhere. Mm -hmm. And one of the people at the church go, you know Dave Denniston? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I made him shovel his driveway. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You did it. <laughs> and they said, wait, what? Yep. I said, yeah, that's, that's Christy's brother. Yep. And they were like stunned that i would know this famous swimmer and i'm like why because i'm short and fat <laughs> but <clears throat> the truth is is that you're right in that world there's a whole different level of thought process that goes in there when it comes to swimmer and and uh, swimming and uh just what it takes to stand on top they yep. they you start to track down and know i mean it's just like wrestling yep uh or football playing or any of those others if you're into that and you you will know everything about it and that that's always just amazed me i think one of the cool things about our sport too is it's not cutthroat um i think there's uh, well as i found out there's a major support system in place where people want to help you succeed they want to help see the people around that that are involved in the sport reach their highest potential and again build their relationship with the water whatever that may be but i think that that's one of the cool things is you do get to know everybody it's a fairly small community but there's also a great level of support and there's not a lot of 
vindictive backstabbing and trying to outdo each other in in questionable ways it's pretty cut and dry times are black and white (laughs) awesome so so then you go through for a four more year could you only try out for the olympics once every how many years every four years every four years so uh you you end up going through another four year you didn't make that first one no so then we we get down to that that uh second one that we start headed towards and uh how does that go didn't make it again uh (laughs) Yeah, but let, let's not but, talk about it. just didn't make it. I want to hear the story about the going to the pool the day that you were racing when they left you in the motel room. Oh, that was the first time. Oh, that was tell that story from the first go. You need to tell them that. Now, you lost by what? One one hundredth of a second. Yeah. And But I want them to understand the rest of the intensity of what had happened from the starter block. Right. So. You know, we have we have coaches that are responsible and, and load up vans and that type of thing. And you're, you're given an itinerary and, you know, be, be down at the van by a certain amount of time. And I was actually down at the van two or three minutes before it was supposed to leave, but the van had already left. So that coach saw that his van was full and he was the last van to go. And so I was stuck at the uh, hotel there and I, I was like where is everybody and I look out and all the vans are gone and this is before cell phones were a big thing like you, nobody really had cell phones in 2000 unless you absolutely needed one and I needed one but I didn't have it and uh, uh I started freaking out I was like well I'm you know I can't run over to the pool I was, how am I gonna do this I went outside and there happened to be a taxi cab drive that was just out in, in front of the, the hotel there. I said, hey, man, I, I don't have any money or anything, but is there any chance you could get me over to the, the venue for Olympic trials? And he's like, are you one of the swimmers? I'm like, yeah, I'm swimming tonight. He's like, I'll get you, brother. And he like gave me a free ride over there. But, Thank God, right? I mean, that he I, went ahead and got you going. But I, you know, I, I felt slighted. I was upset. I, di- I didn't have the emotional maturity to take a deep breath and, and take a step back. I was just pissed. And uh, as anybody that's ever been really irate and upset will tell you, you're never at your best when you're you're upset and mad. And I was not at my best. And I, I think that's part of why I didn't check my goggles the right way. And they did fill up with water and, you know, some of those types of things. And, and when my head coach found me, he could see I was upset and, and tried to calm me down. And that didn't work. Um, I had a re- great relationship with our strength coach at the time. He actually got that coach uh, on the phone with me and, and PK, the strength coach, and I talked and, you know, he kind of built up my confidence again. But I, I was just frazzled. I was frazzled my nerves and, and didn't make it. And, you know, the head coach, Dave, and I are still very good friends. We're close. It was a, ended up being a good bonding experience for us. Um, you know, he has a lot of class. He went and apologized to my parents um, for me getting left back and, and handled it the right way. But the, the coach that was responsible for getting me there has never apologized this day. So we don't talk a lot about him. <laughs> okay. Did you need me to go punch him in the eye? Because I can handle that still. You should have asked me back then. I would have definitely handled it. But in 2000, I was gangstered out. Um, no, but I, 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 think, I think I'll it, have my I'll have my brother in law come and sock you in the face. 
There's been a lot of times in my life I thought about calling up Bert and saying, hey, can, can you go talk to this friend of mine? <laughs> so uh, at the end of uh, – so now we've got through that first Olympics. We've talked a little bit about the four years that followed. Yeah. So then your your second shot at the Olympics was in 2004. It was. All right. Um, so, so give us a rundown on that. Well, the cool thing after Moscow is um, – Nike actually reached out and, and said, hey, Dave, would you be interested in wearing our swimsuits? And I thought it was my friends messing with me, you know. Well, and did they offer free shoes? Well, they did, yeah. I, I know because you're a shoe freak. I, I was obsessed, but at the time I was like, no, my friends are just giving me crap. So I actually hung up on the Nike rep the first time he called. That's I, awesome. So, so Nike itself calls you and is offering you everything. Not everything, but well, they, they were telling me that they were getting in the swimsuit business and they're looking for athletes that have a shot of making the team. Would I be interested in wearing their suits? They'll help pay for my training and, and my training equipment and all of that stuff. And I was like, yeah, bullshit. Um, and so I hung up and then he called me up. He's like, Dave, we got disconnected, but I'll, I'll send you over the offer and the contract. Look it over. And sure enough, it was legit. <laughs> so so how did you react when the contract showed up oh i flipped out man i thought it was the greatest thing ever because at the last minute is when they kind of told me like yeah you get caps goggles all the stuff you need for swimming but because we're nike you can get whatever shoes you want pretty and much golf clubs whenever you want and i ended up getting some golf clubs as yes well. you did uh, and you know the funny thing is i remember when that contract showed up yeah because about three days after it showed up, you called me mm -hmm. and you said, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> I said, what's that? And you go, I'm getting picked up by Nike. I'm going to get free shoes. And I'm like, for swimming? <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, no, like I was an idiot because I was an idiot. And you're like, no, but I get. I get other free stuff. I said, you know, I could really use a set of golf clubs, Dave, to which I've never received. No, I'm, I'm just, sorry. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm teasing. But I do remember you picking all that up because we, um, you were so excited about that. And I was, we were excited for the, you. The cool thing about it is that, you know, that was, that was the thing that made me a quote unquote professional swimmer. And, mm. I mean, to this day, a professional swimmer isn't really a, a thing unless you're Michael Phelps. But yeah, it, but and, and it's gotten a lot bigger and it's grown and it's cool. But you know, to have the sport that I had so much passion for come back around and be like, okay, you're a professional one of these now. I mean, that's one of those little life achievements that you always hang your hat on. And be like, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, very much, very much. So then it comes time for the Olympic trials. Yeah, and the, they were in uh, California. I was training in California at that time. I, I moved to a, a new coach just so I could swim outside. And this new coach was very creative in the way he did training. Uh, his name's Dave Salo, pretty legendary in our sport. But he made me love swimming. And, man, I just had two years of training every day where I looked forward to going to practice every day, and I, I crushed it. Um, unfortunately there were four other guys in the country that were also crushing it. And so I, I didn't make, make the team that year either, but in, in that phase, um, there, there was a little bit of a back and forth between me and this kid from Wyoming named Scott Usher. And every meet we went to, we either Scott would win or I would win. And I got to know his coach pretty well, a guy named TJ Johnson, um, and so, you know, again, we just built those relationships through the process. And 
Scott ended up making the Olympic team in 2004 and I didn't. Um, but you know, out of that relationship, again, it kind of set me up for where I am now because, um, I'm, I'm coaching at the university of Wyoming because of the relationship I built with Scott and TJ. So that's awesome. So, so after the Olympics, then we got the next event, which we do have to cover for, we do have to cover a little bit of this because, yeah, uh, you know, you, we have to realize that a bulk of my listeners, uh, they don't know you. I know. Right. And you are, you are a swim coach for the UW and, mm-hmm. uh, for, for the Wyoming Cowboys and uh, one of the things is is uh, that a lot of people find incredible. I I remember this whole event, etc. I mean, I I've, I rem- I will never forget any of this as long as I live. But on the other end, is uh, I want that story of hope to rest in some of these folks. That they, just because something happens, it doesn't mean the end of all things. Right. And I know they're all listening very closely to go, then what happened? So, yeah, I, I pursued the lifelong dream of being an Olympic swimmer and, and wanting to be an Olympic medalist. And it wasn't coming to fruition. And I didn't really have a, a plan B. Right. And so I went through, I guess, what they call the quarter life crisis. It wasn't a midlife crisis. No, you were pretty young. It was a quarter life crisis because everything I thought I was going to do and set out to do wasn't happening. And so I freaked out a little bit, um, you know, started drinking my feelings and maybe a little too much in the form of brown water or Jack Daniels and ate way too much fast food and all those other things. But you know, kind of went through a little bit of a dark phase where I just didn't know what I was going to do. Didn't seem like anything was going right and and didn't know what was going to happen. And I was trying to pursue different jobs of working and and that type of thing. And at this point, you know, swimming in water were ingrained in me and and through the relationships and being able to travel around the world and represent the U.S., I'd built a lot of cool relationships. And almost out of the blue, a a coach that I knew from New Zealand had, had reached out to me and said, Dave, um, we're, we're building a swimming program down here in New Zealand that I think you'd be a great coach for. Do you think you'd be willing to come to New Zealand to be a swim coach? And this is right when all the Lord of the Rings movies had come out and they were all filmed in New Zealand. I'm like, that place is gorgeous. You yeah. know, I'll teach Frodo how to swim. Sign me up. <laughs> I don't even need a ring. Just let me go. Um, and so I committed to, to doing that and knew that, you know, being across the globe there to to be a coach meant I'd be away from friends, family, places I love for at least a couple of years. And so I wanted to spend as much time with them as I could. And I felt like, okay, that's the light at the end of the tunnel. When, you, when you're in such a dark space where it doesn't feel like anything's right, you just grab onto the one positive thing that comes across your bow and you're like, all right, this is it. And, and so that that's where I was. Oh, yeah. I remember when you showed up at the house. Yeah. And you showed up, you were on your way to the cabin. And so, yeah, that's what it was, is yeah. um, my, my childhood friend, Andy, that I'd grown up with um, and, and palled around with forever, uh, lived in Laramie. And, you know, our our family has a cabin up there in the Snowy Range in Wyoming. And this was in February of 2005. And uh, I said, and, and I'd done this a couple times in high school or whatever, but, you know, the road's closed or whatever. So if you don't have a snowmobile or snowshoes, you aren't getting in. But we had some snowshoes and I was like, hey, Andy, what do you think about snow shooing into the cabin and digging it out because it's buried under 10 feet of snow and 
Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. Go up just there and have just a good for time. people that don't live in Wyoming, <laughs> we yeah. do have areas that get up to eighteen feet of snow. Absolutely, and uh, that's where Dave's talking about being is up on a mountain. When you dig in through ten feet, you're like, man, I'm glad it hasn't snowed very much. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of where we were at, and you know, all that snow insulates the cabin. It's not like you're going to freeze to death. And we had a fireplace and everything else, so it was just kind of a, a Wyoming backwood adventure that I was going to do with my friend and. One of the things about that much snow falling up there is it takes a long time to melt. I mean, there's a reason they call it the snowy range is there's snow drifts up there well into July. And so when I was a kid growing up, um, you know, we'd go up there and go sledding in our shorts because there were still snow drifts out in front of the cabin and there was a little plastic sled up there. And Andy and I saw that little sled and we saw all that snow and we had what boys do. We had fun and, and we went... And, and rode the sled and the first day we were actually found a pretty sp- cool spot where the lake was frozen and we'd go shooting across the lake at 50 60 miles an hour at least that's what it felt like you know and so we were doing all this stuff but it's also at ten thousand feet elevation so every time you climb one of these hills you know you get to the top before you go back down but you, your heartbeat's beating through your eyeballs and you're trying to catch your breath and you're like man if i'm going to keep doing this this ride has to get to be a little more fun and so, as boys do, we kind of challenged each other to do more and more dumb stuff. And um, at this point, we had found basically a cliff behind our cabin where we could catch some sweet air if we hit this little jump just right. And we did that two or three times. And I was like, I'm going to try going down head first, skeleton style, you know, if you're an Olympic loser. And I'm not. But I uh, decided that I was going to go off this cliff head first. And I did. And I was doing really well uh, and had a great time. It kind of knocked the wind out of me a little bit after the jump because I landed on my stomach. But then it sent me off towards a grove of trees and, and I tried to dodge a couple of the trees. But those the trees made a shadow in the snow that just made the snow. That top layer was pure ice. And so there was really no way for me to stop or control the sled. And, and there was one tree and I that just we made eye contact and smashed into each other pretty hard i thought i was gonna hit the tree with my face and uh, i was able to spin my body around right before impact and i actually hit the tree right in the middle of my back and it uh knocked the wind out of me initially which is still to this day one of the worst feelings in the world when you can't breathe um but then as soon as i was like getting some air back i realized oh man this isn't good i can't feel my legs at all right yeah and uh andy was on top of the hill and I tell you what, man, he he saved my life in more ways than one. He went and put a went and got a blanket, put it over me, wouldn't let me move. I was laying there in the snow, which was actually a good thing. It probably kept my back from swelling up and doing more damage to my spinal cord. But uh, then then he spent the next two to three hours trying to get help, and eventually got the paramedics from Laramie to come up on snowmobiles, and it was a whole rescue production to get me off that mountain. But yeah, I I paralyzed myself basically from the waist down right and then you ended up down in uh fort collins right so the surgery was done in fort collins right and And that's and and christian i had got down there then and i i was i just happened to be in the room the day they told you yeah well your dad dad and i were standing there yeah uh well we had a pretty good idea at that point we did (laughs) we knew we knew what we were facing we would none of us were happy with it no but you know it I tell you what, man, that that experience was horrible, but also one of the best in my life. 
You know, that that is not the attitude most people would take. Well, it's it's hindsight, too, of course. Right, right. But uh, what I remember from that was the outpouring of love that I got in those four or five days. Because David Marsh, who was getting ready for the conference championship, left Alabama and came out to see me in the hospital. Left his team that was getting ready to compete because he wanted to see me. You know, and uh, multiple friends came from all over the country in that window of six, seven days to come see me. And we would tell stories and share stories. And uh, there was one where uh, my roommate at the time, a guy named Kicker, came to visit me. And we were telling stories about, um, you know, living together and doing stuff. Well, (laughs) when we lived in California, a baby possum had gotten into our apartment. (laughs) And so I was telling this whole story about how we tried to wrestle this apartment. Well, Kicker's from Kentucky, so I'm doing his impression. But we were telling stories about how we got this possum with salad tongs out of the underneath. Nice. (laughs) And I just started laughing up so hard that I coughed up this big, like, ball of blood from my lungs. And it kind of freaked everybody out. Oh, my God, Dave's dying. Yeah, and the nurse came in, and all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, we saw that on the x-ray. We thought that'd come up here pretty soon. Like, what, are you going to tell me it was in there? Thanks for the info, Doc. (laughs) Um, But that's that's what I remember about it, is is just the outpouring of love and the number of doctors and nurses that would come into my room because it smelled so good. I probably had $2,000 worth of flowers in my in my uh, do- uh, hospital room there, and it, it did. It smelled amazing. I had great friends, and I was like, I'm going to be okay. I got I got this support system. Life's going to be okay. And, you know, most people get broken in moments like that. They get broken to where they are like, not just physically broken, but what ends up happening is they end up um, either sinking in depression, on and on and on, Uh not you not that you didn't face any of those little moments yeah but a big chunk of what the deal was is all of a sudden your directions just became different it did and again um you know having great mentors and people in my life to guide me along the way when david marsh did come to visit he he knew because i'd helped him with swim camps and that type of thing that i love doing public speaking talking about goals, motivational speaking, if you want to call it that, um, whatever the case may be. But he was the one that kind of said, Dave, you need to make sure every day you're you're writing down, documenting your experience here because you're going to use it and you're going to use it to help people. And I was like, I can do that. And I did. And, and I use that to this day for when I do get to be a keynote speaker or that type of thing, there's a lot of different quirky, funny stories that happened in that phase of my life that I still like to share because it's an anecdote or it's, it's something that, that can relate to people in one way or another. But that whole experience was something that, you know, uh, probably did more for me than making the Olympic team or winning a gold medal would ever do. I would agree. You know, one of my favorite stories, I went to see you speak at uh, Casper College. Mm -hmm. And you're in your wheelchair. Mm -hmm. And they get you up on on the stage. (laughs) And we're watching you wheel across the stage. And all of a sudden, you disappeared from the (laughs) stage. Yeah, I fell off. (laughs) Dave fell off the back of the stage. And suddenly, everybody goes, uh, 
I the whole place kind of freaks out for just a few seconds because <laughs> Dave shot off sideways because I don't know if he wasn't looking or what he was doing. No, I but tend to get too animated. <laughs> he does. He is a little animated, so there he shoots off to the side. But the other thing that ends up happening with him is he ends up... Um, he was dating a girl at the time. Mm-hmm. And what does she do? She does not freak out when Dave shoots off the side of the stage. Uh, the rest of us kind of stood up and she starts snickering. And when Dave gets up, she uh, he looks over at her and us and she's like, you're a dork. <laughs> yep. And Dave's like, puts a thumbs up. Yes, I'm a dork. <laughs> yep. And then he went on with things. But that's the right way to manage that stuff out. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's falls, bumps, and bruises in every form in life, and that was just one of them. But, yeah, that's how those kind of things came to be. And um, I just, I don't know, I I felt blessed off of it. And, And, you know, that was one of the things that was cool. And I think the other thing for me is there were a couple other people that were in similar situations as mine at the point, and I did notice how many of them just sat in their room and sulked and said, this isn't the life I want and this isn't what I planned. And cause it never is. Nobody ever was like, Oh, hope I'm in a wheelchair one day. Um, but there, there was a couple people that were like, no, but there's, there's some cool opportunities here and <coughs> there, there's some cool, sorry st- about that. Yeah. There's some cool stuff that you can do being in a wheelchair and you, and you start to understand that, you know, there's, there's a new way of life. And if you look at it as a new way of living life, then, you know, you still have as much, if not more opportunities to, to live a very fulfilling life. And I decided to put my energy and focus towards that. I think the the depression and stuff that people have through a traumatic injury like this is very natural. But remember, I was also coming from a dark place. And, right. and I don't know if it was darker than what you experience with a spinal cord injury. I don't think that that's the case. But I think my mindset at the time was very much geared toward looking toward anything positive that I could just pursue and, and put my focus on. Well, one and, thing and is that's it, what I found. that even New Zealand, even though they knew of the incident, they mm-hmm. still said, are you still coming to New Zealand? <laughs> they didn't even bat an eye. They were like... We still need you as a coach, whether right. whether you're walking or rolling, we still need a coach, and you're still our guy. Right. And I had to tell him no. <laughs> um, so You I, weren't in the mode. Yeah, I still have not been to New Zealand, actually. I need to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that, that was, I don't know. It, it was an interesting time, but I think it also put me in a path of, of the right way. One of the things through that phase that, got to be pretty annoying was swimming so right uh, uh, there were a lot of people that all of a sudden were like oh well you were one of the best swimmers in the world you're gonna do the paralympics you're gonna compete in the paralympics i didn't know what the paralympics were i was like i'm not a special olympian you know right we, <laughs> that is not the same thing they, Dave. they are very two very di- distinct things that um both have a lot of value, but they are very unique in, in, Absolutely. in amongst each other. So the Paralympic Games are the same as the Olympic Games, but it's for people primarily with physical disabilities. And I was like, I don't, I'm trying to figure out how to sit up, you know? I'm not thinking about being in the water. Right. I don't want to do that. And so... How did it go the first time they put you in water? Well, so, yeah, I was in... in we moved me down to Craig Hospital, mm-hmm. Um which wasn't an easy move because the ambulance from Fort Collins to Craig hospital blew a flat tire on I 25 and there wasn't enough pain medication in the world at that point. But I got to Craig where they had a 
it's an amazing rehab facility. They teach you how to use, you know, all the stuff you need from wheelchairs to learning how to drive with your hands and all those things. But they also have a recreational therapy department and they want you to be able to do the things that you've always done. So, I mean, I've seen people go hunting by blowing a straw into a rifle to shoot it. Wow. Right. Because on. they can't use their arms. You That's know? crazy. So they're, they're, they've really developed a lot of cool stuff. Well, word got out pretty quickly that Dave's a swimmer. Mm hmm. And at the time, the pool at Craig Hospital was a giant jacuzzi about the size of this room, 10 foot by 10 foot, something like that. (laughs) And I got in there with the therapist, and she had these little diving rings, and I don't know, there were six or seven of them that she threw. She's like, okay, go get as many of them as you can. So I went into the pool. You definitely did not know who you were. And and picked up all the rings, and I'm like, here you go. And they're like, we're going to need a bigger pool. We're going to need a bigger pool. Um, so eventually we worked my way up and, and they took me to a rec center, um, of a normal size, like 25 yard pool. And, and we got in there and they were all a little bit nervous, but also a little bit excited. And so I got in the water and I was like, oh, I can still do this. My body's naturally very buoyant. So I could just swim even without being able to use my legs. So I swam a little freestyle or crawl stroke and I'm like, okay, that feels good. And, breaststroke my baby i was like well this is weird without your legs because it's a really leg driven stroke i was like oh i can do that and then i was like all right let's go for it so the beast of swimming is butterfly you know that's the one that's the prettiest that everyone likes to see but also takes the most physical work right and i was like let's try it and sure enough i I was able to put together a, a length of butterfly and i was at that point exhausted and done but uh, there was a camera crew there and all this other stuff that got to see that. And I was like, I'm still a swimmer. I I'm got it. I've yeah. still got to happen in. Yep. So um, fell, fell back in love with the water and, and made it a part of my life um, again in, in a different way. And really enjoyed just being in the water for a, a, a mental therapy more than anything. I had no desire to be in the Paralympics. but But you did go. So Jimmy Flowers, the guy that recruited me to Auburn, right, um, had moved to Colorado Springs and was working at the Olympic Training Center, and he'd become the, the national Paralympic coach for, for Team USA. Right on. And he called me up, and you know we stayed in touch through this whole phase, and he said, Dave, I, I got all the people to back off and stop asking about the Paralympics all the time. It's ultimately your choice. But if it's something you want to try to do for Beijing, we got to get you classified. It's a whole process. Right. He goes, you know, the last couple of meets to be able to do that are coming up if you want it. And this is 2007. So it'd been a couple of years. Right. Yeah. And, and I said, you know, why not? I've been swimming every day, freaking the lifeguards out at the local pool here. Cause I just roll my wheelchair up to the edge of the pool and throw <laughs> myself in. Yeah. I'd love when you do that. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, but I was swimming on a regular basis just for fitness and, and again, my own mental health. But at the same time, I was like, I, st- I think I can still do this. And Jimmy's offering to be my coach who was my coach when I was a national champion and right. all that. And I was like, God's telling me something here, right? right? Like th- th- this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. And so I moved to Colorado and was very fortunate where Jimmy and I learned how to rebuild our coach swimmer relationship because uh, I had a whole new body. And you know, his first time I was at a meet, he's like, kick. No, I can't tell you to kick. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. Wait, no, <laughs> no, that's not going to work. Uh, so you guys end up going to Beijing. Yep. And so <clears throat> made made the Paralympic team in 2008 and went to Beijing and was named captain and 
Jimmy pushed me into the bird's nest for opening ceremonies, and I got to wear that American flag cap. And yep, you had the you had the who designed those? That was Ralph Lauren. Ra- Ralph Lauren. Yeah, I yeah, remember yeah. that. I we were watching <laughs> and seeing you on TV, and we were like, "Yeah, that's Dave right there." Yeah, man, that was cool. Yeah. So yeah. a, a dream that I'd had for a, a lifetime came true, but not in a way I've ever would have imagined in a million years. No, but it it was you you did it. Yep. You were an Olympian. Yep. I mean, that's the cool thing. So, uh then we go on to you end up becoming a coach. Mhm. And you ended up becoming a coach not through your greatest desire to be a coach, but there was an incident. Yeah, so there's um <laughs> through every tragedy there's opportunity. Absolutely. And, and you don't you don't want to pursue tragedy to create opportunity unless you work for the government uh, that's a whole other thing <laughs> that's a whole different thing uh, that's your cia there jason Bourne. yeah there you go but um so i i was you know in my uh, 31 32 at this point and, and realizing like okay i truly have done everything as an athlete i want to do in this sport but i love it i want to give back to it I want to learn to become a coach. And so I, I talked to Jimmy about transitioning and, and working my way out of swimming as an athlete. But in the process, I wanted him to start guiding me and mentoring me to being a coach because that's what I really wanted to do. And he said, all right, Dave, let's do that. We'll set up a plan, all this other stuff. Um, I'm going to go up and climb Capitol Peak up by Aspen this weekend with some friends. And I remember talking to him about it because he was looking for a headlamp. He's like, I can't find a headlamp that works. <laughs> I don't know why you remember this, some of this stuff. And he told me that, you know, it's kind of a tricky peak to get up to the top of Capitol Peak because there's um, a really knife edge that you got to go through for two or 300 yards. And a lot of people actually straddle it. They call it riding the pony. And mm-hmm. they'll, they'll just scoot themselves across it to get up to this peak. Right. I was like, oh, okay, well, you can handle that. You know, I know he's done a lot more tricky stuff than that and didn't think much about it. And like, all right, I'll talk to you on Monday, bud. You know, have a good trip. And I got a call on Sunday morning from a a former teammate of mine. And uh, he was like, hey, Dave, you doing all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. What's going on? You know, how are you? And he's like, well, did you hear about Jimmy? And I was like, no, he's up climbing a mountain. He's like, well, yeah, Dave, he, he fell off that mountain and died. And I was like, wait, what? He goes, yeah, he, he, he's he gone. And I was just like, no. <laughs> you know, you go into shock, you're like, that's not true. He couldn't happen. Well, sure enough, that's what had happened. They were coming down from the top, and um, his foot had slipped pretty close to that knife's edge, and he fell, I don't know what they eventually said, six, 800 feet, but... Um, broke enough bones and everything like that that he bled out on the mountain and and passed away yeah that was that was a rough one and um i was lost obviously and and pretty frustrated but i also had about 15 teammates that i was training with at the olympic training center at the time and um was able to talk to the powers that be and that type of thing and said you know I, i know i'm not officially a coach but i know jimmy's style i know jimmy's plan I don't think I could be Jimmy, but I could I could help these guys. And I, I asked my teammates, if I apply and, and become the coach, will you guys keep swimming? And I think 13 out of the 15 were like, yeah. The, the other two were just heartbroken. They're like, I can't swim ever again. But um, Dealing with tragedy differently. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> I, I got the job, and yeah, we went to London in 2012, and 
you know, we, we had a very successful meet there, but, um, I like how you just downplay that a little bit. Yes. You had a successful meet. Well, what was cool is so (coughs) team USA won, I think it was 98 medals, um, in the Paralympics in, in London. Um, yeah, just, just 98, 40, 46 of the 98 were from swimming. Mm -hmm. And I think it was 24 of those 40s six were from my my team and my athletes that I coached and um what was really cool about that is it's the only medal I ever got but the the USOPC and and that committee has a really cool program that's kind of behind the scenes it'll never be in the news or anything like that but they have the order of Ecos and Ecos was the first known coach from Greek Olympics and uh Basically, it's it's the opportunity for an athlete that wins a medal at the Olympic or the Paralympic Games to give the Order of Ecos medal to a coach that they know helped him earn that medal. And so on the last day of the meet, the my, my teammates gave me six of those medals and hung them around my neck, and we had the tears and the hugs and all that stuff. So it That's was cool. awesome. It was cool. That is that is. Awesome. So you ended up coaching for quite a while. How long? Uh, I was there working with that for about five years. Okay. Um, And, you know, it's interesting when you, when you start pursuing success and and some of those things, your focus becomes tunnel, tunnel vision. Um, At the time, the, the Olympic committee, U.S. Olympic committee, everything else was so focused on winning medals that they weren't in my opinion, taking care of the athletes that were winning the medals. They weren't setting them up for life after the games. They weren't doing anything to help them with the mental health and and the things that go into competing at a very high level. And, you know, I I didn't like that that approach. And and we had some disagreements about how to pursue that and that type of thing. I was like, I I care about people more than I care about medals. And so um, that's kind of why I decided to step away from from working at, at the Olympic Paralympic level at, at the USOC and um, reached out to TJ up in Wyoming. I said, hey, I'm taking this summer off, man. But if you need help with swim camps, let me know. He's like, actually, yeah. So I came up to Laramie, spend time at the cabin when there wasn't snow around and <laughs> had a good time. But TJ was like, actually, my assistant coach is leaving. Would you want to be an assistant coach here? I was like, heck yeah, man. So he hired me to be his assistant coach just by coincidence. His previous assistant coach had moved on to a new position. And so I got to work with TJ and be at Wyoming and see Scott Usher's picture every day at work. <laughs> That's funny. So uh, so you end up coaching uh, Wyoming's team and you – uh, Wyoming had not been to a lot of very top end things. Is that correct? Or yeah, help, help, help me I mean, along it's, it's with a, this. It's a mid major program. And, and part of the issue is that the, the pool is really a, a very small outdated facility. So some of it's facility driven, you know, there's a lot of different things, but when most kids are swimming and growing up, they aren't thinking, oh boy, I want to swim at Wyoming. You know, they want to go to Texas and yeah. Stanford and yeah. Cal and, yeah. you know, they, those they want Auburn. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, part of it's just recruiting and, and getting the, the level of athlete that can compete there. But, you, you know, I, I'm able to build up the program where we have gotten some top level athletes. We've taken some kids to NCAAs. We've taken some people to do do a great job. We've won conference championships now. And so I I guess on its face, there's a successful component from an athletic side. But what I really like is just seeing what they, 
athletes I get to work with grow into and become as people, leaders in the community, leaders at work. Um, It's neat to see them go through their own struggles and their own challenges and their own obstacles and grow from it. And, and that's what I really love about our sport. So um, now I want to tap just here, just for a little bit. Yep. Uh, You, you have been successful at all of this stuff. You end up, uh, end up with this most wonderful of wives. (laughs) Yes. And I'm trying to talk her in. I'm going to try to talk her into being in the show because she, she does not see, she sees herself not as doing these amazing things, but uh, she worked with kids Mm -hmm. for a long time that Mm -hmm. had, uh, she's a nurse. Right. So she worked in um, ICU. Uh, intensive care units in for pediatric cardiac patients. So that's a very unique thing. Essentially, kids that were having heart surgery, whether it was heart replacement, valve fixes, you know, whatever the case may be. We're talking. Yeah, we'll ki- we'll get ki- her to tell that story. Ki- kids that have heart surgery, which right. I think when you think surgery, maybe outside of brain surgery, that's the one where you're just like. Yeah, I uh, hope this works, you know, so and, and some did, do and some don't. But that that's something that she she pursued. And um, she she's very good at keeping life in perspective for me, because when I get upset about a swimmer having a bad day or not going the split I want there, she's like, well, <laughs> let me tell you what happened with me today. <laughs> right. Okay, I got you. So uh, how did you meet her? <laughs> um, so. Andy, my friend that I grew up with, that I was that saved my life, that we were uh, up there in the mountains with. Um, he was at the time dating this girl Amanda, and Amanda and Andy ended up getting married. But Amanda's little sister is this girl Jen. Oh, Jen! Yeah, and the little sister. And Jen was, uh, you know younger and and those types of things but we flirted shamelessly with each other from day one it was it was pretty gross to be honest but um (laughs) we we always just gave each other a hard time you know teased each other but because our families were so close and, and andy truly is one of the closest friends i could ever have in my life i spent a lot of time with him and so you know thanksgiving holidays whatever i'd i'd see jen about once a year and We'd pick up where we left off and give each other a hard time, but she was always, as a travel nurse, kind of going around the country, and I was kind of doing my thing, and we were just never in the same place at the same time. And and when I left the Olympic Training Center, uh, I went out to California uh, to see some friends that I had out in California, but Jen happened to be in San Diego working as a nurse at that point. And we were purely friends, but I was like, hey, Jen, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in San Diego. You want to go get lunch or something and just catch up? Because at that point, we were friends. We, you know, right, just right. friends. And so we went and got burritos and Bloody Marys. And um, the two important B's of they, society. They really that, are. Is, that is like a. And the, uh, and the, the bond the was B built. Vitamin. It was built over Bloody Marys and burritos. But. Um, you know, it was kind of one of those things where we always felt and knew the connection we had with each other. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of like, all right, you're both adults. Do you think you can make something work here? And, and, you know, we hit it off and I came back out a couple weeks later and saw her again. And a couple weeks later came out and saw her again. And, (laughs) and she moves to Denver and now we're seeing each other every other week. But through that process, we're also talking every day. 
Right. And that was the best thing because as I'm leaving work, she's going to work. She worked the night shift. So we mm-hmm. had that 20 minute window where we would talk every day. Mm-hmm. And in that 20 minute window, because we weren't together face to face, we talked and covered all the subjects. Right. And we got to know each other at, a, at the highest level possible and just fell in love. And, you know, I finally said, all right, let's do this thing. And so now we're married. Yeah, and you and your best bud are now brother in laws. Your brothers, your brothers for <laughs> and, real. And actually, Amanda and Jen love it because <laughs> when we get together over the holidays and that type of thing, they don't have to worry like, ah, oh, hope our husbands can tolerate each other for a couple days. We usually go out in the woods and they don't see us yes, for the yeah. whole time. <laughs> no, that that is that is great, uh, and I love that about your and Andy's relationship, and yep. that. You know, your wives, they know how to tolerate each other pretty well, being that they're sisters. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, so let me ask you this. How about your faith? Mm-hmm. Okay. You were raised in? The Lutheran Church. Okay. Missouri Senate. You're a Missouri <laughs> Senate, by goodness. All right. And uh, so tell me how your faith has played into all of this. Well, you know, yeah, we grew up in the lutheran church but at the same time like the first swim camp i went to was called athletes in action and it was a faith-based church or okay. a faith-based camp camp yeah and so i learned to look at the bible from a dis- different perspective and i started to understand how um faith could be a part of sport you know one of the cool things about our sport is to show you where the wall is in every pool at the end of each wall there's usually a big tile mm-hmm what they call a T. Yeah. But it's, it's a cross. A cross. It you're, is. You're swimming to the cross. Yeah. And when you see the cross, that means you're about to do something. You're going to change direction. Yep. And you're going to change direction to go either back to where you came from or whatever the case may be. But you start to understand like, okay, there's a little bit more at play here. Right. And, and that's what I loved about exploring the faith in a way outside of the church is understanding how it applied to my passions, my daily life, where it could fit in. And, and I think that's also a little bit about where my love and understanding of water came from. Right. Now, it, you had mentioned earlier about water has a very theological or very significant meaning. So let's dive into well, that. Well, I mean, l- let's look at the surface. You know this stuff way more and way better than I do. But I think what most people know and understand about God the being. Right is there's a couple components that describes him. First one is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Yep. Well, what's water? It's everywhere. It's in the air. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It, 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 it is truly everywhere. Mm-hmm. All-knowing. Well, yeah, it, it, it does know everything. They've actually done some really cool studies in um, Japan and China where they will talk to water yeah. in a positive or negative way. I'm trying to, and Dr. Then, Wu, I Wu, think, is yeah. who did that. Yeah. And, and, and you can see that, like, okay, there, there, there is a, a, a higher spiritual component to water beyond just the physical. Mm-hmm. And then you, you even look at, like, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, what, what created mountains? Icebergs, frozen right. water, right. rain. We know what that does. Like, right. water creates. Um, and, and then I think the other component of, of it kind of being everything for every situation, it can create life and it can take life away. Very true. And so when you, when you do that, what I've come to realize is that by being a swimmer and that type of thing is I'm, I'm in 
in God, <laughs> in a way. Like it, it, it's it's the, the the closest physical connection you can have, right? And, and and so when I was swimming, racing, that type of thing, it wasn't about winning a race. What I've come to realize it was it was a celebration of faith. Amen. That's beautiful. And, and so water is something that. I just think is the coolest stuff. It is. <laughs> I, I it really is. do. So uh, as you as you walked along in in your faith and you developed this view, sure. etc. So do you apply that all the time? No, I mean, I'm a human. What? <laughs> You're not perfect. I thought that you from. just had that going on. So uh, how does it relate to your faith today? I think. <clears throat> There's two, there's two parts to it. I know it's something I can always fall back on, but I think the the sinner natural part of me is also somebody that's always going to look for, oh, I can do it myself. <laughs> I, I got this. I don't need help. <laughs> and I think that's one of those things that's actually gotten me in trouble since breaking my back is one of the things they teach you at Craig Hospital is how to be independent. Right. I, I almost lost Jen because I was so stubborn about being independent. Right. You know, there was one time where I was in, in, in San Diego and um, her parents were there at the same time and I'm, I have a great relationship with them. So we went and had lunch in San Diego and I was like, okay, well, I got to hit the road. And Jen's like, hey, do you need some help with your chair? Wanting to give me a hug and a kiss goodbye. Right. Bonehead. And I was like, no, I can do it by myself. <laughs> She's like, oh, I guess I'm reading this relationship wrong. <laughs> And yeah. I got like 10 minutes down the road, I'm like, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what you were really asking. <laughs> she was looking for the moment, boy. And, 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 that's, and that's, my <laughs> that's my natural tendency, too, even when it comes to faith, is I'm going to try to do it all myself until I smash my face into a wall or I get so frustrated. I was like, oh, yeah, God can help you with this. But, right. you, but you're going to have to ask. Right. And, and, and that is a bit of my cycle, but it's also one of those things that I've gotten more comfortable being like, there's a much higher, more powerful being that can get you through any struggle, no matter how big or how minute you just got to ask and you got to be committed to, to doing that. Right. And, and, well, you know, and, that and that's one of those things that it's like, especially with the, my, my frustration and my struggles now as a daily basis are, wanting the best for the athletes I work with and helping guide them in whatever way possible, knowing full well a lot of them don't have a faith, don't, right. don't have a thing. So I, I'm in a situation where it's like, okay, how can I give them hope? How can I give them purpose without shoving the Bible down their throat? Because that's not going to help them in that moment, right? And, and, and it becomes a little bit of a, a dance, and at, at some point— you just have to say, okay, God, guide me here because I don't know what I'm going to do. How Have you ever had any of your athletes um, come to Christ, or have you ever had any of your athletes complain about your faith? Um, <coughs> there, there have been uh, a, a few that have come to Christ. Um, one guy really, really struggled with uh, alcohol and some of that stuff, and um, when, when he finally decided to, to get things back together, that, that was a cool moment and faith was a major driver in that for him. Um, so that was pretty cool. Um, but no, you know, it's funny as a coach and you know, you, you have so many hours in a day. I mean, typically I'm spending two to three hours a day with these kids and for the majority of it, their face is under the water. 
Right. So the the communication has to be precise, distinct, and and it's usually pretty limited. And most of the time, it's based around swimming. But my favorite part of my job is when an athlete comes into my office and we just talk. Yeah. And, and when I get those moments, that's when you start to see things start to grow and and, and develop. That's beautiful. So um, when it comes down to uh, your walk with your wife. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> You know, one thing, I, I was very blessed to be able to, to do your wedding. Yeah. I was very honored that you'd asked me to do that. And, uh, you know, the one thing is, is that the two of you, uh, your faith definitely played a part in you. It plays a part in your relationship. But the other part of that is just your level of respect for one another. That that shows more of your faith mm-hmm. than any preaching you would ever do. Mm-hmm. And Dave, one thing I would say about you uh, not observing you coaching, but just your presence in there with people always wondering, why is he always... You know, and it's such a driven person for one. But the other thing is, you know, uh, I've always really respected the fact that no matter what happened, the tragedy of losing your friend, the 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 tragedy of the of the accident, stuff like that, the um, missing the Olympic, thing, all that all that stuff could have destroyed you at any given point. But God pulled you through the other end, and, and you know that's one thing with your mom and dad that them putting you in that church and putting you in that uh, the catechism and, and uh, going through all of those things, you know, even though you may have not recognized it at the time, it was all those little seeds planted that when God needed them to blossom, they mm-hmm. did, mm-hmm. you know, or when you would suddenly recognize something, he's like, yeah, I planted that seed in you when you were eight. Yep. You know, I planted that seed in you when you were 12, you know, yep. and then later on you see those things come to fruition. So, Yeah just truly truly blessed you are well and i think the big thing for me through all those is you know i talk about power but one of the things i've really realized in my my younger sister karen kind of brought this to light for me is just the power of hope you know through all tragedies through all things you know it's horrible in the moment but there's going to be better days and there's going to be better moments and there's going to be better opportunities. You got to have the hope and the faith that it's going to be better. That's what the whole Bible's about. Yeah. And, and you know, Romans 5 3 is the big, big verse that, that stands out because it kind of embodies a lot of what I've been through, where the first, first sentence in it is rejoice in our suffering. Right. <laughs> because suffering builds perseverance. Right. For perseverance builds character correct nobody talks about building character anymore i think no. that's one of the big things we we need to get back to as a society and and you do that through suffering and challenges and that type of thing but when you have that character and you've gone through that persevering what it creates ultimately is hope and hope will never fail so mm-hmm. I, I have always really appreciated that one and l- like to see that you know it's pretty cut and dry with the people that i get to interact with and see with is we're on, when they're on that verge of giving up hope is when they need it more than anything else. And, and hope will instill action in people way more than motivation or anything else like that. you got to have that hope. Amen. Well, hey, mister, I think they're going to have breakfast for us in the other room. I hope so. So let me ask, let me ask, you got any final words, final words of advice? I'll, although advice. those, that was like incredible right there. 
So, you know, uh, if you have a crazy biker pull up in front of your house with some of these gang member friends uh, and your mom tells you to run in the house, don't be afraid. He might be the nice guy, right? It might be one of the coolest people in your life, <laughs> without a question. Well, I can tell you what is that uh, as, as you went through a lot of these things, uh, you have definitely been an inspiration to me in my life. And I just, uh, I'm blessed by you. Well, thanks, bud. And uh, I have definitely, uh, I have been trying to get you on this show for like five years. <laughs> <laughs> have you had this show five years? Yeah, I started like in 2019, 2017, okay. actually. Okay, 20, so we're there. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, when we got this opportunity, this was amazing, and I appreciate you so much. Well, I appreciate you too, and, and I do think, well, I think, you know, advice, whatever the case may be, having conversations like this face to face over a cup of coffee. I mean, the microphones are a little bit invasive, but overall, just getting to be able to have a conversation with somebody that you love, trust, respect, and and you can share ideas with, um, that's what helps you grow. That's what helps your character and your soul grow. And and you've, you know, helped re strengthen my faith, but also I think in a lot of ways helped me uh, build build my soul up. And, and, you know, I think a lot of people, when they see me being inspiring or whatever we want to call it, I think it's a reflection of, of what you helped me build with in my own life. So, wow. Thanks, Amen. man. Thank you. All righty. All right. Well, that was Dave Denniston and uh, the University of Wyoming coach. And I, and uh, you know, what he's most famous for is being my brother-in-law. That's what he's most, actually, actually he's most famous for being Christie's brother. That's yeah. what he, that, that's what he's famous for, right? Yeah, no, that, um, I tell you what, man, you know, you talk about Jen being an amazing woman. But the more I've grown and, and realized with just what Christy, Christy is always so happy and so positive, And she is that way with everybody. Oh, yeah. I don't re- ever remember a bad day with Christy. And I don't know how that's possible. But um, that's true. She, I, she, she's amazing. She's some, you know, you, you find things in everybody around you, whether you're related or not. That there's always something you can admire about somebody. And if you look for it. And boy, I tell you what, Christy's one of those is like... If I could be more like her, I think the world would be a better place. <laughs> Man, if we had more of more of her around the world, the world would be amazing. Because see, you know, one thing with her, she can she can move past anything, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. I you can have somebody just do the most horrific thing in the world and it isn't that she finds that okay, but she will go, We need to look for the love in that person, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I've seen her sit in rooms full of uh men that have uh yeah, murdered people, raped people, etc. And she will still find this yep. is why we should love this person. Yep. I mean that is the Jesus in that woman. So yep. Yeah, I need to talk her into being on this show, but she's always like, I have nothing to say and nobody would be interested. <laughs> that's goofy. I, I don't think that's true. I, <laughs> you know what you need to do with her is cooking in the faith. Cooking in the faith. That yeah. would be an awesome deal. I, yeah. I would love some Christy recipes. I can tell you that right now. You, I've been trying you to put a little her. Holy Spirit on some cheese and I'm the end. <laughs> that's a great up. title for a book. So <laughs> I will try and talk her into that. Yeah, so, there you go. Yeah, let's.
let's visit with her about there while she, while we eat our breakfast this morning. I'm ready for it. All right, so we'll see you next time on The Barbarian Prophet. For questions or comments, please email us at info at thebarbarianprophet.com. The Barbarian Prophet is a registered trademark of Barbarian Media Group. Listening to this podcast may cause excitability, euphoria, and overall sense of happiness and the realization that you're not alone. Discontinue use if reddened skin or a rash develops. Side effects may include random hugging, crying out loud, smiling while alone, and happy crying combined with snot bubble development. Do not use during church service. No animals were harmed in the making of this podcast. Are you actually still listening? Seriously, we have nothing more to say except for that one thing that was really, really, really important. But let's wait until the next show for that. Well, that one more thing I want you to remember is there's always hope. No matter how bad things can get out there, I want you to know that you have hope at the end because you have Christ functioning in your life. And if you don't have Christ functioning in your life, ask yourself, why not? He's been there for you from the beginning. All those little hard times, he carried you through. And I love you all. And Jesus loves you all, and there's nothing you can do to stop us. So we'll see you next time, Barbarian Nation, on The Barbarian Prophet.